Let's pray, and then let's jump in. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you'd speak to us through it. Lord, that, that uh, just through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd speak directly to, to me and to each and every heart in here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 6. While you're turning there, <clears throat> uh, oh, if you've been around here for any amount of time at all, <clears throat> you know that uh, we have uh, various times been talking about expanding. <clears throat> and we've had we've come up with ideas and we hit roadblocks, and then we've come up with other ideas, and then hit roadblocks. I think three different times um, we have actively tried to find or tried to, to expand um, in one way or another. And every single time we've hit a roadblock. And so when we hit a roadblock, we just kind of stopped and said, Lord, what do you, what do you want uh, from us? Where are you leading? Those sorts of things. And just there's never been real clarity uh, amongst leadership, among our elders. Never been real clarity. And so... This this morning, what I want to do is spend the next seven weeks or so, six, seven weeks, uh, looking at why we exist. And here's why now. You might be saying, okay, you've talked about it for, a, for so long, especially if you've been around. Why now? Well, the last three or four weeks, uh, we have had, in the second service, um, 54, just today, we had 52 kids back there in, in Wellspring Kids in the second hour. And, that, and we had... Um, uh, more than normal in the first hour. In fact, we've had probably about the same size uh, uh, group in every service this morning. There hasn't been one that's been uh, larger than the other. And so um, that's that's been, thank you, Phil. Appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, that has uh, been uh, going on all, all, three, all three hours and, and, and then more so in the, in the second hour as far as our kids go. And so there's just 54 kids in, in, in four classrooms, five classrooms back there. That's absurd. A couple weeks ago, I heard four and five-year-olds. In the second hour, there were 20 of them. And you're thinking you were glad you're in here. At least I am. <clears throat> 24 and five-year-olds, that's crazy. And so, and they're all in one classroom. Like, that's one class. You know, I, I didn't tell any other hour this, but I'll just tell you, before I went to seminary, it took a year... And uh, uh, was living back at my parents' house. Mary Jo and I were engaged, so we were just kind of buying time until we moved halfway across the country. And I subbed, and I had uh, about 25 kindergartners one, one, one morning. It was actually right next to my mom's uh, an aide, and it was right next door to her classroom. And um, they started the Pledge of Allegiance. And right as they started the Pledge of Allegiance, a, a little kid threw up right in the middle of the classroom. And I'm in there by myself. And I was 24 years old. And in there by myself, and I looked around, and I just sit in the middle of the pledge. I sent everybody out of the room, you know, down the hallway. I didn't know what to do. That's what I pictured was going on back there, you know. And uh, I'm just glad I'm in here with you, all right. Well, we've got to do something about that, all right. We we have to. And, and I don't know, I don't know what that is. I don't know, I, and nobody knows right now. And so what I want to do is take six, seven weeks to look at why we exist as a church. There are hundreds of churches around here. Um, but there's something unique about us. There's something unique about our DNA. Something unique about what God is doing and, and has done in planting our church. And so that the, the, what the words are is that we exist, Wellspring exists to, to make disciples of all nations through gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered service, gospel-centered community. And if you've been around here, we talk, we, we really major on the gospel. So that's, there's a reason, there's redundancy there. 
But, um, but, but what is he doing in our future? And I think this is a very important time in the life of our church. And so I want to look at, at that. What makes us unique over the next seven weeks or so? And, and, and this morning what I want to do is kind of lay the track, lay the, 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 the train track, so to speak, for this train that's going to be moving out of the station over the next seven weeks or so. Uh, I want to lay the foundation that we're going to build on. And I know that might sound a little bit weird, but, but hopefully it will make a little bit more sense as we move this morning. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and starting in verse 1. We're going to go from verse 1 down to verse 5, but the 5 through 18 don't make sense unless you're talking, unless you look at verse 1. Beware. Jesus says, beware in the mount. This is a sermon on the mount, a little background. Greatest sermon ever preached. Beware. Be careful. There could be danger. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for, from your Father who is in heaven. You know, a legitimate danger for us in southwest Missouri, in the Bible Belt, a legitimate danger is that we would begin to do religious things. Come to church, maybe even read your Bible, uh, talk about religious things. So that other people will think highly of us. In, in our culture, now, you're in the Northeast, and it's not true necessarily anymore. And I, I truly believe it's kind of moving this direction. But as of right now, as of January 2018, there is still this cultural Christianity in our uh, area, in, in the place that we live. And there's this danger, Jesus says, there's this danger of going through the motions, but there's no heart behind it that desires the one whom we Come to worship. We can show up here on Sunday morning. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I believe there are thousands of people in southwest Missouri, southeast Kansas, that, that are showing up here uh, at church. Not here in this room, but in churches on Sunday morning. And they just do it so that other people will think highly of them. They will uh, hire of them. They do it because it's a social, cultural thing to do. And there is no heart. There is no desire there's no, there's no um, a movement towards the one who is behind the reason that we come. The one whom we worship. And Jesus says, you better beware of that. Watch out for that. That's a dangerous place to be. He goes on. Jump down to verse 5. And he starts to talk about prayer. And when you pray, the assumption is made that we are praying. Not if you pray, but the assumption is made that we pray as followers of Christ. You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. That word, empty phrases, is an interesting word that I came across this week. And, and it means frantic, sustained babbling. There was this silly belief uh, amongst the Gentiles that if they got stirred up, if they just began to babble uh, redundant phrases, even in, uh, 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 phrases that could not be understood, that God would somehow be more likely to answer their prayers. Jesus says, that's silly stuff. Don't do that. 
Don't, empty up, uh, don't offer or heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they, uh, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at two things we shouldn't do as we pray and two things we should do while we pray. After looking at Jesus' example, the Lord's Prayer. Two things we shouldn't do. Number one is this. The first thing that we should not do is uh, not, not, not that Jesus is saying that we shouldn't pray publicly. Like we do this every Sunday morning. You probably do it when you go out to eat. Do it around people regularly. Bible study, home groups. Uh, but Jesus is saying, he's not saying don't pray publicly, but here's what he is saying. That our public prayers should be an outflow of our private prayers. Like there should, There's this expectancy by Jesus, or from Jesus, that his followers are regularly praying in the secret place. In the, in the prayer closets. When nobody else is looking. There's this regular rhythm to our life that should include praying privately. When nobody's looking. And then, when we pray publicly, it's an outflow, or it's a result of, it's an overflow from the prayers that we have been regularly praying by ourselves. Think about it. Every other thing that we do, everything else, somebody else probably knows about, could know about. For example, you come to church, other people see you. You, you uh, give, most of the time we put our name on it. Not everybody, but somebody knows what you give. You uh, read the Bible, somebody's going to know you, you are a regular reader of the Bible. In conversations, maybe they see if you're one that writes in your Bible, people will see the results of that. Somebody's going to know every other thing that you do. You fast, somebody's probably going to know about it. There's going to be an inkling there. The only thing that nobody could never, ever know about is your private prayer life. Nobody will know about that except for you and God. You and God. And, and Jesus says that, that when you are asked to pray publicly, it should just be the result, the natural outflow of the pr praying that you do when just it's me and you. It's just me and you, God says. That's what public prayer should be about. The second thing that you shouldn't do is um, you shouldn't pray as if you're somebody that you're not. Here's what I mean by that. Um, you um, have, have regular, uh, not regularly, but you sometimes um, uh, meet somebody. And then shortly after you meet them, they seem like an average person, average guy, average girl. Uh, and and you, you meet them. And shortly thereafter, they're asked to pray. And then suddenly they get weird. Like they, they downshift into their, their, um, uh, you know, their inner King James version. <laughs> and they're like, you know, um, wilt thou, oh Yahweh. And you're like, did you just say wilt thou Yahweh? And you're like, yes, I did. Like that's weird. Like, you're not supposed to do that. Like we don't downshift into our inner King James version or our inner English accent. That's not the way we're supposed to pray. Like we're just supposed to pray like we normally pray, like we normally talk. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not, that, that there's not reverence. Like God is not our homeboy, no matter what the church says. Like there's a reverence there that we're supposed to, to have. We're talking about that in our family right now, our five-year-old. 
stuffs her face in the pillow every time she prays. And, and I'm like, no, nah, you gotta, you know, you gotta sit up. And, and mom's like, you're allowed to pray in any posture. That's what the Bible says. I'm like, okay, it's true. But we're gonna have a reverence. So we're just trying to work through that, teach through that. Um, but but here's what Jesus is saying. We shouldn't pray as if we're somebody that we're not. And we just use our regular language. You don't have to pray weird. You don't have to get all weird on us. Whenever you pray. And so the two things we shouldn't do. First one is only pray in public. It should be the result, the, the overflow of our private prayer life. And number two, just pray like you normally talk. You're just talking to God. Then he tells us how to pray. Pray like this, verse 9. We don't do those things. This is what we do do. Pray like this. If you've played sports, you've said this prayer a thousand times or more. More than you can talk. Or more than you can number. But, but Jesus' point here is not that we would recite this prayer. It's that it's a template for how we pray. And here's the template. Our Father in heaven. Now, before we go on, I just got to stop there. And take this chance, because I, I regularly do this, but I can't let the chance pass us by. God invites us into a relationship with Him based on being our Father. He invites us into a relationship in a familial way. It's a familial relationship. Here's what I mean. Think about your boss. Your boss may be great. He or she may be awesome. You may be friends with him. You may go out to eat with him. Uh, you may, your families may like each other. You may hang out after work. But your relationship with your boss is at its heart, at its root, based on one thing. Your performance. If you fail to do what you were hired to do, that boss, no matter how good of a friend they may be, will have to fire you. You fail to perform, you lose your job. You lose that relationship. Think about a parent. A parent is no less serious about performance, if you think about it. Like, if you have kids, you wanted them to act a certain way, you expected them to do your best. We regularly grace it. God's giving you a set of a skill set. He's giving you talents. I want you to use them. Do the best you can with them. You've heard that. You've given that pep talk to your kids. There's an expectation that there will be performance. But here's the difference. When your parents saw that you failed to perform, if they were good parents... When there was a, a standard and you failed to meet that standard, good parents lean in at that exact time. In fact, I think it could be the argument could be made. That's when it's most important. And that's exactly when, when you fail to measure up, parents lean in. I love you. Yes, you didn't meet the standard. Yes, we're going to work on that. Yes, but there is nothing. There is nothing, son. There is nothing, daughter, that you could ever do to keep me from loving you. That's the basis on which we come to God. When we fail to measure up, He leans in. When we fail to do what we've been told to do, He leans in. And with His love, His mercy, and His grace, He invites us back into relationship. I think most of us believe that God loves us. But he likes you. Not, not a 10-year better version of you. Not 10 years down the road better version of you. That's not. You know, he likes you right where you are. In the gunk that you live in. He likes you. And he loves you. You say, well, I'm not sure I can buy that, Scott. 
I mean, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did this week. You don't know how I treated those people. Now, he's not satisfied with where we are. He wants to see us move in the word of sanctification, become more and more like him. But he likes you because he sees you through the blood of his son. He likes you and he loves you if you know Christ this morning. That's good news. And we talk about it regularly, but it's because I, and I'm sure you, if you were standing up here as well, would say, I regularly need to be reminded that the God of the universe not only loves me, but he likes me right where I am. Let's keep going. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, we've looked at two things we shouldn't do. Here are two things that we should do when we pray. First one is this. Look at this prayer. This prayer is extremely God-centered. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We want your kingdom to come. Not our kingdom to come. We want your will to be done, not our will to be done. God, it doesn't matter what our will is. We want your will to be done in our lives. We want your will to be done. Hallowed be your name. This is from the beginning to the end. This is centered. This prayer that Jesus gives us is centered on God. It is unarguably God-centered. And our prayer should be the same. God, we're not coming to you as if you're a Coke machine, putting in the right coins, pushing the right buttons, and hoping to get something out of you. That's not why we come to you. This is, we just want to know you. We want our prayers to be centered on you. We just want to know you deeper. We want to know you more. We want to know you more intimately. First thing that our prayers should include is they should be unarguably God-centered. They should be God-centered. Number two, the second thing. Look at verse 14 and 15. This is confusing a little bit. These verses are. It says, forgive others, God will forgive you. Don't forgive others, God will not forgive you. And, and if you've been around uh, church people at all, these have been used as weapons before. These verses have been used as weapons. I think that's a terrible way to use them. But here's what God is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying when he says these verses. Um, if, if you have been wronged deeply by somebody that was close to you, that you loved. I mean, they did something. It was terrible. And you hold a grudge. You refuse to forgive. Whether they have asked for it or not, it is not dependent upon that. Whether they have asked for your forgiveness or not, if you hold a grudge, Jesus is saying that you are, are in your heart, through your bitterness, you are saying, I am better than you are. I am more self-righteous. In your self-righteousness, you are saying to the person who has wronged you, I am better than you. Essentially, what you're telling God, not even the person that wronged you, but that God, you're saying, look, God, I have my stuff together so much. I am, I am such a good person that I would never steep to the depths that that person uh, steeped to when they hurt me. I would never wrong a person the way that, that I was wrong. I am way too good for that. And in your self-righteousness, you're telling the Savior of the world, 
I don't need you in this area of my life. When we hold grudges, when we re refuse to forgive, we are telling the Savior of the world, He is not needed. And every single one of us, every single one of us, are in desperate need of a Savior. And that includes every square inch of our being, of our body. There is nothing in me that is good. There is nothing in me that does not need a Savior today. Just as much as the first day that I asked Him to come into my life, to forgive me of my sin, and to give me the gift of eternal life. That day, and every single day since, including today, every square inch of my being, every bit of my soul, my spirit, and my body is in desperate need of a Savior. And when I refuse to forgive... What I'm saying is, but not today, because I got this covered myself. And so our prayers should be God-centered, and they should be a posture that is willing to forgive, willing to forgive. He closes it out with these verses about fasting, 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, did you catch that? The entire way down, all these verses before, 5 through 15, so 10, 11 verses, Jesus is saying, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Whatever's going on on the inside is what should be going on on the outside. And then he gets to fasting, and he says, be a hypocrite. Again, it doesn't make sense. He says, uh, you know, if you pray in private, that, that's an overflow of your prayer life in public. Um, I, I want... Don't be, whatever's going on, whatever you love on the inside is what you should be portraying on the outside. And then he gets to fasting and he says, Even, but, but, but except for when you're fasting, I don't want you to act like you're fasting. Jesus, what are you doing here? What, is that, what do you mean? How does that make sense? How is that um, um, a jive or, or dovetail with the rest of this chapter? What on earth could you possibly be saying, Jesus? You tell us over and over and over again. You want us to be authentic. You want us to be open. You want us to be repentant. You want us to have relationships. And then all of a sudden, we get to fasting, and you say, fake it. Don't act like you're, you're fasting. Well, here's what's going on, I think, in the text. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that we have regular rhythms of life. For, for most of us, when you think about fasting, most of the time, it's... It, 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 what comes to mind is food. Now, it could be other things, but most of the time it's food. So we have these regular three times a day we eat a meal, generally speaking, in this regular rhythm of life. And what fasting is, is you are saying, God, I'm going to set aside something that I, I regularly, that, that I need. Something that I need, something that just a regular rhythm of my life. I'm going to take that and I'm going to set it aside. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to abstain from that. For a time. And in its place, I am going with every part of my being. I'm just going to pursue you. God, I'm not, I'm not looking for anything from you. 
I just want to know you more deeply. I want to know you more intimately. I'm not looking for any. I just want you, God. I want you. I even put in my notes. I put, um, fasting is not. I'm going to do these things so that God will do what I ask him to do. Or what I want him to do. That's manipulation. And the king of the universe will not be manipulated. Fasting is going, I'm setting aside the regular rhythm of my life. Something that I need. Something that I regularly do. I'm setting it aside. And I'm using that time instead to just get after God. No agenda except for him. I want to know him more intimately. I want to know him more deeply. And that is the only objective that I have. So here's what that means for us. Over the next six weeks, seven weeks, as we work through our vision statement, talking, just looking at what we exist for, the reason that we're a church, here's what I would ask. Would you join others in your church in prayer? I mean, getting after God in our, in, in our prayer life. And pray this specific thing. God, so far we haven't had clarity on what you want us to do, where you want us to go. We don't know what it is that you want us to do. But God, over these during this time as we corporately come together... In our individual lives. God, would you give us clarity on what it is you want? We just want to know you. We want to know your will. And then would you close out your prayer? It's going to look a little different for each and every one of us, obviously. We're unique. But would you close out your prayer saying this? And whatever it is, whatever your will is for our church, whatever it might look like, if it's, if it's to build, if it's to stay here in, this, in, in the walls that you've already given us, if it's to move or if it's to stay in this location, whatever it is, would it be such that only you can get the glory? Would it be such that only you can get the glory? God, if, you, if, if your desire is to bring a lot of unchurched people here, I mean, people that show up and they don't smell like us, they don't look like us, they don't act like us, they're not church people, they don't know when to stand, they don't know when to sit. If that's your plan for our church, God, God, and they hear the gospel for the first time and they come to repentance, God, would you be the one that gets the glory for that? Or maybe, maybe it's, it's people that have already been coming to church here and they've just been going through the motions, they're church people. They go, I'm tired of playing the game. I put this, put, you know, dress the right way, I put on the right face, but I've been faking it, and I'm tired of faking it. I want to know the one who we regularly talk about. If that's what he, his desire is to do in and through our church, would it be such that he is the one who gets the glory? We're not asking him for anything except that he would be known, and his will would be known as well. And would you add to that? I know not everybody can do this. But would you commit to fast something? It doesn't have to be food. Maybe there's medical reasons you can't do that. And I'm not talking about a long fast. I, for me personally, it's going to be one meal a week. Just something like that. And I'm going to set that aside. I'm just going to get after it. God, would you just reveal your plan for our church to us? And it would be a plan that only you can get the credit for. Whatever it is you have in store for us. Whatever it is.
Let's pray. Father, I pray this week, pray this morning, that over these next several weeks, that you would be known. That as a church, as we go into the secret places, pray, God, show us your will. Manifest your presence to us. May we know where you're leading. May we know where you're going. And then have the courage to follow. And whatever that looks like, whatever you have in store, whoever it is that you desire to bring to us, wherever it is you desire to take us, whatever that looks like, would it be such that you get the glory? Nobody can stand up on this stage and say that we, in our wisdom, figured this out. This is all about you. You're the one who gets the 